Okay. I'm people with me. I'm people with it. I'm a player baller. I'm a player's athletic. I'm a people A1. All got street cred. I'm a player baller. I'm a player's athletic. Pulled up in the family. Pulled off with a dance. Got a pocket full of money. Kinda hard to keep my pants up. Trying to run them bands up. Just because you my hands up. Little quake from Zans up. Kinda hard to understand up. Bags in the Welcome to DFS MVP, Daily Fantasy Sports Most Valuable Podcast, presented by 4 for 4 Football. I am 4 for 4s senior DFS editor, Chris Raybon, joined, as always, by Mr. TJ Hernandez. I know you had a busy week, TJ. What's going on? Yeah, man, we uh, made a big announcement. Check out my Twitter timeline for that. Uh, but other than that, just grinding the old, uh, grinding the old off-season grind, trying to get ready for week one, man. The song that played us in today was Two Chains, Watch Out, off his 2016 album, Kali Grove. And this was probably the most recent song that we've played here at DFS MVP. But I thought this was a really good song for us because this was actually me and TJ's turn up song <laughs> when we took a little four for four staff retreat to Mexico. So I fig- figured this song was fitting. Yeah, it's a good song. Uh, you know, we we're out in Mexico having a couple mezcals, a couple cervezas, and. We needed a little something to get us going before we hit the town, so this was kind of our theme that week. Absolutely, and I encourage you guys to also check out the video for this song. It's a really, <laughs> really funny video, good video. And TJ, I don't know if we got to remind the people last week, but you have actually created the DFS MVP playlist on Spotify. Tell people where they can find that. Yeah, just search uh, playlist DFS MVP. Uh, it's not together like the hashtag. It's two words, DFS and then MVP. Uh, search it. When we tweet out the podcast, I'll put out the playlist link as well. It has all of our intros going back to week one of last season. So if you need a little uh, lineup building music, it's a perfect playlist for that. Cool. I'll also put that in the show notes then so you guys can easily find it. Today we are going to be talking about DFS wide receiver strategy so that should be a really interesting topic because wide receivers generally take up the most salary and the most roster slots in your DFS lineup so a lot of good things to talk about let's jump right in I'll start off by talking about the correlations of fantasy points to DFS production the listeners out there you can find this information on my article entitled DFS Playbook 2016 Wide Receiver Strategy. But essentially for wide receivers, you really want to emphasize volume first and foremost when making lineup decisions. When I looked at the correlations of fantasy points to all the different wide receiver stats, what I found was that targets per game and target market share both had correlations above 0.8 red zone targets per game and red zone target market share both had correlations in the 60s and 70s 0.60 and 0.70 that is and then the efficiency correlations on the other hand 
such as touchdowns per target and yards per target were around 50.50 correlation and catch rate and yards per reception were at 0.40 or below. So opportunity is really dictating wide receiver production and keep in mind that while we are referring to targets as an opportunity metric, that doesn't mean we're doing so at the expense of talent. It takes talent in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, it takes talent to draw a target in the first place. So don't think that because we're suggesting that you emphasize volume that that means you're just looking for any old wide receiver. I think talent actually plays a huge role in terms of which wide receivers you're selecting more so than probably any other position. I think you want the wide receivers you're selecting to be talented, but wide receivers can be talented in different ways. Um, There's not one type of talented receiver. For example, Jarvis Landry is a talented receiver. Now you might look at his numbers and say, well, he has a low yards per catch or he didn't have a lot of touchdowns, but Jarvis Landry is a very talented wide receiver. His talent comes more um, with the ball in his hands and just running quick routes, getting open quickly, but he still draws a lot of targets and that's what makes him uh, a high scoring fantasy player. Vegas lines, they don't play as much of a role in wide receiver production. And TJ, um, I know we could talk about this, a little more in your big game profiles, but road underdogs actually return the most value on both FanDuel and DraftKings last season. And surprisingly, there's there's not actually much of a relationship between wide receiver production and implied team totals. And this is something that you want to keep in mind because the majority of the field in tournaments are essentially over-owning wide receivers in games with favorable Vegas odds. People look to the Vegas odds a lot in DFS, as we should, because we want to have an idea about game script. We want to have an idea about how many points each team will score. But the thing is, Vegas odds are a lot more helpful for running backs, for defenses, for kickers, and to some extent for quarterbacks in terms of implied points. But when it comes to wide receivers, there's not much of a correlation there because... And that goes back to what I said about the market share numbers being highly correlated. When you have a highly correlated market share, what that's saying is even if a team struggles, if a wide receiver is getting a large portion of the market share, they can usually overcome a team struggling, especially on DraftKings where you're getting a full point per reception and you're getting a yardage bonus. On FanDuel, you do want touchdowns, so I might pay a little more attention to the team totals there, but... In general, I think you can actually use the Vegas lines for wide receivers rather than to predict production. You can use the Vegas lines to predict ownership instead. And that's just another way to leverage the Vegas lines. So the Vegas lines can always be leveraged, but sometimes you're going to want to leverage them in terms of predicting actual production, and it's going to be more useful for cash games. And then sometimes, in the case of wide receivers, they're more helpful in tournaments in terms of projecting ownership, which is a key to tournaments, not just you don't want to just be projecting player performance. You're going to find a big edge in predicting ownership and trying to get on some of the lower owned plays that also offer good value. In cash games, you really want to pay for consistency at the wide receiver position. If you've listened to the previous two podcasts, you'll know that at quarterback, 
you can generally find cheaper options in a given week. And that running back, it's all about volume. So you can definitely, especially as the season wears on and backs get injured, find cheap volume there. So in both cash games and tournaments, it's smart to pay up for wide receiver because while the average wide receiver might only be average in terms of consistency, they actually are um, not as consistent as quarterbacks, not as consistent as kickers, but slightly more consistent than running backs and more consistent than tight ends and defenses as well on both full PPR and half PPR sites. But what happens is the top high-end receivers are far more consistent than most other players, and they have huge upside as well. So Antonio Brown, Julio Jones, Odell Beckham, Allen Robinson, etc., are the guys that you're usually going to want to get at least one and sometimes two of those guys in your cash and tournament lineups whenever you can, and that's what's really going to give you the best chance at consistently winning. On FanDuel, 43.3% of wide receivers hit two X or cash game value. What 2X means is two points per $1,000 of salary. So 43% hit 2X at the salary tier of 8500 or above. And there were just over four wide receivers per week priced in that range. And 43% was actually the the best hit rate in terms of cash game production on FanDuel of any salary tier below, uh, except the, those receivers below 5K, but there are hardly any of those that are playable in a given week. So you really want to seek out those 8,500 and above stud wide receivers on FanDuel. There'll be an average of over four a week. And usually one or two of those will be really good plays, especially in cash games on DraftKings. You usually trying to hit at least three points per $1,000 or three X value in your cash games. And of wide receivers that cost 8K or more, 35.2% hit that 3X threshold. And that was also the best percentage of any receiver above 5K. So you'll you'll be able to fill a slot or two in DraftKings with a cheap wide receiver as well because sometimes you can even play four wide receivers if you play one in the flex, but you still want to aim to have uh, at least two studs whenever possible in your wide receiver slots. That's going to give you the best ROI according to the numbers. I've crunched these numbers all offseason, and that's what I found is that you can find a lot of value inexpensively at quarterback and at running back. Tight ends just aren't priced that high, so you're not going to end up usually paying that much for a tight end. And we'll get more into that on next week's podcast when we spend a whole hour talking about tight ends. But wide receiver is really the position where you want to pay up for in cash games and in tournaments. In terms of their consistency, the wide receiver targets... I've talked about coefficient of variation before, and what that is, it's standard deviation divided into the mean, and that basically is a measure of volatility, so we can do this with individual wide receiver stats. So targets have a 41% CV, which is more consistent than rush attempts at a 43%. The lower the number, the more consistent, and tight end targets at 47%. So wide receivers' opportunities are actually the most consistent of any position, and as a result, receiving yards have a 59% CV, which is you know more consistent than tight end receiving yards and running back rushing yards, which, which both have 65% CVs in terms of how much they vary on a weekly basis. And what that just means is that for wide receivers, whatever their average receiving yards per game is, 
on average they go each week they go 59% higher or lower than that. So that's something to keep in mind. We can project we can actually predict wide receivers a little better than the other positions. They've become more consistent and this is somewhat recent development because of the increased passing in the NFL and wide receiver reception CV is 48%, but the wide receiver receiving touchdown CV is 151%, which means it's very volatile because you can have a lot of games with zero and then you can have games with two or three even, which explains why the more touchdown dependent receivers or more so just the, the, the deep threats of the can be, can be more volatile sometimes than, than the guys that rack up a lot of catches and targets like a Jarvis Landry or an Edelman or, you know, Brown or, Beckham or whoever, those guys are going to be consistent, whereas guys like a Deshaun Jackson, who a lot of long plays, long touchdowns, not as consistent necessarily on a weekly basis, although Jackson had a good run last year of consistency. I think he caught a touchdown in maybe four games in a row, but in general, when you're looking for consistent play, you're looking for those targets and catches because they are the most predictable stats and therefore when you're looking at projections and you see a wide receiver projected for x amount of fantasy points and you see a running back projected for that same amount in general you you should be a little more confident in the projection for the wide receiver uh, as opposed to the running back so that was some cash game more tilted to cash game in terms of uh, advice here in terms of looking for consistency and and what correlates, but in terms of tournaments, we're really looking for those big games. And TJ, you have a great series out on four for four right now, entitled DFS Big Game Profiles. The tight end version just came out today, so I encourage the listeners to check that out. But wide receiver big games came out a few days ago. TJ, take us through what the indicators for big games at the wide receiver position until yeah so the the kind of the impetus behind this study is uh i was going through and kind of trying to figure out what we need to be looking for at each position with the idea being that we're never going to be able to nail down the the number one guy at every single position it's just not realistic even with hundreds of thousands of teams in a gpp uh, we see that you know sometimes uh sometimes guys have some some really good players on their roster but not the best so i kind of comb through the data the last three years and what i found is that at the wide receiver position since you can start three on fanduel and three on DraftKings, up to four, including the flex, that if you have a couple guys that finish in the top eight at wide receiver, you're usually at least going to be in the mix. Uh, we see all the time that guys take down GPPs, and one of their guys, even in even in the Millie Maker, um, you could have one guy that has a somewhat down game. So if you even have just a couple wide receivers that kind of get close to that top eight threshold, you're going to be in the mix. And uh, what I did is... I, I took the average top eight score uh, from the last three years and went back and looked at all of the players that hit that point threshold. So twenty, about 25 points on FanDuel, about 31 DraftKings points. Uh, the reason I did that is because instead of just looking at every single top eight wide receiver, uh, this kind of weeds out any players that might have finished in the top eight on just a surprisingly low scoring week. Uh, what, what I found is 
pretty similar to what you've been talking about in terms of uh, targets and, and paying up for wide receiver, but there are some specifics that I want to touch on and subtleties between the sites that you might not think about immediately just because you're kind of thinking about GPP players in the same light, uh, but we do really have to make a little bit of a difference when we're uh, playing on different sites. So one thing that I noticed, and you quickly touched on this for a second, Chris, is that we want wide receivers on the winning team somewhat. Um, on, a, on both FanDuel and DraftKings, the big game top eight wide receivers came from the winning team about 60% of the time. So that's still a fair amount. But compared to the other positions, it just doesn't carry as much weight Uh what is really what really stood out, and you got into this as well, is that the home away splits, looking at the over under, looking at the implied odds, uh, it just really didn't matter for tight ends. Um, I mean, for wide receivers, I'm sorry. Uh, just about 50, a little over 50% of our big game wide receivers came at home. Uh, over under of 46 or more, which is usually where we see a boost at the other positions, it was still just barely above 50% of our big game wide receivers. And then if we looked at implied point totals on both FanDuel and DraftKings, less than 50% of big game wide receivers with a team implied point total uh, under 24. And 24 is right about that cutoff where we start to see uh, increase in offensive production. Um, it was there was, even, there was even more players that came from projected low scoring team so that's just those vegas lines that have to do with team scores just aren't predictive of a wide receivers production and chris you gave a really good example of this i think it was in the playbook um about how wide receivers can benefit from garbage time and people don't realize this because uh, we've shown that losing quarterbacks aren't usually great plays so i think the natural mental progression is that the wide receiver isn't a great play but if you think about how a, a bad game script goes uh if a team's up by a couple scores they're going to go into a prevent defense and we see it all the time uh the opposing offense marches down the field so maybe they'll get 65 yards on the final drive when uh all game they have maybe 150 total yards or something like that uh if the quarterback throws for all 65 yards um he might get two and a half points but if he targets his number one wide receiver and the receiver gets four catches for 10 yards, that's eight PPR points on DraftKings. Then if he happens to score a garbage time touchdown, which happens a fair amount, now we have 14 points on the final drive. Not to mention what he's done before. So you can see how a wide receiver in a bad game script can really boost up his numbers very late in the game. So like you touched on, we could actually use this to our advantage. And maybe while the rest of the field is targeting these high high point total games uh, you can be contrarian have a low owned wide receiver in a apparent bad matchup and you're gonna have um, an edge over the field because his expectations probably pretty close to the guys in the high scoring games uh, but he's going to be lower on so that's a really great thing to know and take advantage of uh, one another thing that i did notice is that matchups weren't generally predictive of wide receivers success and when i'm looking at matchups i'm looking at uh, fantasy points against models and the reason those can be a little bit tricky is because we're usually looking at how defenses do against wide receivers as a whole uh, we know that cornerback matchups really matter so we really want to be digging into those stats and 
for the most part, these dominant receivers just aren't going to be shut down. They're going to get targeted so often that they're going to have big games because they dominate the game. They're, there's very few Revis Islands or Josh Normans. It just doesn't happen that much. So matchup generally isn't going to predict wide receiver success. Um, when we're comparing the two sites, volume did prove to be slightly more important on DraftKings, which isn't surprising just because DraftKings is a full PPR uh, scoring system. So we did see slightly more big games come uh, just from 100-yard games and a higher catch volume on DraftKings, whereas touchdowns carried a little bit more weight. We saw a slightly higher percentage of two touchdown games come out of those wide receivers, uh, those top-scoring wide receivers on FanDuel. About two-thirds of the time on FanDuel, you needed a wide receiver to score two or more touchdowns. On DraftKings, the number was just about 58%. So not a huge difference, but enough to take note of. And what you want to take away from that is, uh, in a coin flip situation on DraftKings, you want to favor the guy that's going to have a few more targets overall. Uh, on FanDuel, you're going to want to favor the guy that's going to see a few more red zone targets. And just to show how predictable those targets are, uh, last year we had 138 instances of a receiver catching eight or more balls, but only 52 individual receivers made up those games. So basically what that means is that a lot of receivers are seeing a high volume uh repeatedly it happens more than once so we can get a really good idea of who those high volume receivers are on the other hand those two touchdown games are a lot more random and you could get some guys especially on FanDuel that uh, might be off off people's radar just because it's really hard to predict where these two touchdown games are going to come from Uh, a receiver scored twice in a game 71 times last season uh, but that came from 47 different players so we just saw uh, much more randomness and where those two touchdown games are coming from. So those are a few ways that you can exploit what's going on in these big tournaments and really try to narrow down the kind of players that you're trying to target. Definitely. And one thing I want to go back to for a second is that you spoke about adjusted fantasy point. Well, fantasy points allowed models for mm-hmm. wide receivers. And obviously at four for four, we use schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed, but either way, I think it's a really good point that they can be misleading because I actually did an article earlier in the summer called Does the Patriots Defense Really Stop the Top Option? where I looked at how the Patriots defense performed against number one wide receivers over the last three years. And in 2015, it was really interesting because number one wide receivers averaged 17% less DraftKings points per game against the Patriots, but all wide receivers average 8% more DraftKings points per game against the Patriots. So essentially, if you looked at just the Patriots wide receiver points allowed throughout the season, you would be severely overrating wide receiver ones against the Patriots, but you would be severely underrating wide receiver twos and whatnot against the Patriots. So I think it's really important when you look at receiver matchups to look at more of the actual matchups than just the fantasy points allowed because a lot of teams will have one cornerback that's better than another one or certain teams will play a certain type of zone defense or different types of schemes that can really affect each receiver's production and it won't necessarily 
just be uniform just because a team is really bad against wide receivers doesn't necessarily mean they're really bad against all wide receivers and just because the team is good against wide receivers doesn't necessarily mean they're good against all wide receivers these numbers in terms of fantasy points allowed for wide receivers can be very fragile so that is something to keep in mind and I think this is this all is important because when you combine the fact that matchups and fantasy points allowed can be misleading for wide receivers with the fact that Vegas odds can be misleading for wide receivers and even home road splits can be somewhat misleading for wide receivers. Those are the things that I think a lot of people are looking to when they select wide receivers. So by understanding that these things are actually probably overrated, I think you can start to get a big edge in tournaments by looking at some other factors namely you know i think market shares are go way Mm -hmm. under the radar a lot of people are looking maybe they're looking at targets but they're not looking at the market share as much and the reason a market share is important again is because a wide receiver you know could have a tough schedule and he might get a lot of targets compared or it might not even be a tough schedule it might just be game scripts where they didn't have to pass or whatever but a wide receiver's targets may be down but he might still be getting over a quarter of his team's targets and that's something to watch out for but moving on to some more tournament tips in terms of wide receivers in my DFS playbook wide receiver strategy article I also looked at the top lineups for the millionaire maker and the Sunday million on FanDuel and the Millionaire Maker on DraftKings, excuse me, and I basically looked at ownership percentages, and I looked at salaries, and on both sites, winning lineups paid up for two wide receivers. On DraftKings, the wide receiver one was, on the median salary for the wide receiver one was 8700 the median salary for the wide receiver two was 7250 and those were the two most expensive players in the lineup. And on FanDuel, the median salary for the wide receiver one was nine thousand, and the median salary for the wide receiver two was seventy-seven hundred, and that was the first and the third most expensive positions in the lineup. So as you can see, most winning lineups are spending up for two stud wide receivers. And the good thing about that is there's only so many of those in a given week, so you can kind of back into which stud wide receivers you want to play. Sometimes what I like to do is I like to – there's usually four, five, six stud wide receivers and maybe maybe a, maybe a few less than that that you actually will consider playing. And I like to sometimes play not the highest-owned one but the next highest-owned one because I think it's a good mix of value and ownership. Some other notes, both sites – winning lineups spent more for the wide receiver two than for the running back one. So that's another thing to keep in mind. I know that maybe for some newer players that you're looking for a high upside at every position and you might think, okay, I locked in a, in a stud wide receiver. I want to pair him with a stud running back. But to actually win, that wasn't necessarily the case. Now, some of that is the fact that on average, running backs aren't priced as high as wide receivers, but it just goes to show that there are always going to be a few running backs that are priced pretty highly and comparably to wide receivers, and in, they're usually not going to be worth it. I could see rostering an expensive running back 
in a week where there are a lot of cheap options because I think the ownership is going to trend that way, and I think there are going to be a lot of similar lineups because people are just going to be choosing amongst a bunch of cheap running backs, and I think that's where it's a really good time to go and roster an Adrian Peterson or something like that. But your core strategy for constructing winning tournament lineups should be to prioritize getting two stud-wide receivers into your lineup, and you should be willing to prioritize that in front of spending for even your top running back. In terms of ownership, the average ownership for the highest owned wide receiver in a DraftKings lineup. Now, this is not necessarily the most expensive receiver. This is just the average of all of the highest owned receivers in the winning Millionaire Maker lineup on DraftKings. And that was 31.5%. So... That is a pretty astronomical number, and what that tells you is that one chalk play at wide receiver is okay, and we spoke about this on the running back strategy pod on DFS MVP last weekend, but it's the same thing at running back. One chalk play is generally okay. Wide receiver, one chalk play is okay as well. FanDuel, the average highest owned wide receiver, was owned 26.6%, so And this is something that I try to stress whenever I can in terms of tournament lineup construction. Not every single pick that you make has to be contrarian. You can have an effective tournament lineup where you combine chalk plays with off-the-radar plays. That's what you should really be going for. You shouldn't be just simply saying, I am not going to play anybody that's high-owned because the players that are high-owned are high-owned for a reason because they're are projected to be better values and if you're fading completely all of the best values on a weekly basis that is not a plus ev strategy what you're trying to do is roster the guys you need to take up take some value at running back and wide receiver maybe one chalk play each at those positions and then at all the other positions that's where you kind of look for your lower owned plays and try to differentiate your lineup from the field in terms of the flex position on DraftKings and this is a this is a very small sample so I'm not sure I would read a ton into it but it's worth noting that wide receiver was in the flex just under half the time it was second to running back which was in the flex just over half the time and tight end wasn't in the flex at all in the winning lineups now again this is a small sample that we're dealing with only I believe 15 millionaire maker lineups from 2015. So that could just be noise, but something to keep in mind for those who were curious. And if you guys were wondering why, why do we want to pay up for wide receivers? Why do wide receivers have so much upside? To put some data behind it, the reason you want to pay up for wide receivers is, and this is especially true on DraftKings. It's true on FanDuel as well, but not to the same extent. On DraftKings, 40 point games, which are, ideal for taking down a tournament you probably want a couple of 40 point games in your lineup of the 40 point games that have taken place over the last three years it's only happened first of all 69 times since 2013 that a player has dropped 40 on DraftKings. so that's only 1.4 times per week so really there's going to be only one or two guys per week that that put up 40 burgers on DraftKings. And 55% of those players that put up 40 or more points over the last three years were wide receivers. 55% were wide receivers. Only 22% were running backs, 19% quarterbacks, and 4% tight ends. So 
what you're seeing is wide receivers have the most high-end upside. They're the most likely to put up a completely ridiculous score, and that's why you generally want to pay up for two of them because the guys at the highest price ranges are the guys that are most likely to do that among wide receivers. So, And that's, a, that's another argument for putting a wide receiver in the flex, even though it was pretty much equal last year on DraftKings. But overall, wide receivers do have more upside. The reason that flex running backs work in the flex at DraftKings is for the exact reason that we spoke about, though, because you do want to get two high-end receivers into your lineup. Sometimes it just makes more sense to go cheap in the flex, and you can usually find a cheaper play at running back that's going to have 20-touch upside or a lot more volume upside than you can find a cheap play at wide receiver that's going to have that same kind of volume upside. So that's the reason why wide receivers in the flex do make sense um, but running backs can also be viable because it helps you to afford to stud wide receivers. So switching gears, uh, a favorite topic of ours, regression. TJ, you had a series on 4 for 4 where you discussed regression candidates for each position. So tell us about some of the wide receiver regression candidates and just wide receiver regression in general sure but uh before we get to that i do want to get back to one point that you made about ownership i didn't want to gloss over this too quickly uh you mentioned not fading um, a high on guy because of good value um i think that a lot of times people kind of mess up ownership and i i want to get your thoughts on this because we haven't uh, talked about this off air yet but when you're fading um, a highly owned guy, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have any exposure to that guy. A lot of people don't understand exposure quite well. If you think a very highly owned play is might not be the best play for, for what you're doing, and this is assuming you're rolling out a fair number of lineups, uh, you could just manage the exposure and have a very contrarian portfolio. You don't just have to have a contrarian lineup. So to make that, uh, to, to understand that very simply, if uh, the highest owned guy is going to be around 30%. You can have that wide receiver in maybe 15% of your lineups, and then you're underexposed, and now you have a very different portfolio compared to the field. Uh, if you if you like him kind of on par where he's at, you can have him owned at about 30%. If you think is a spectacular value and you don't think enough people realize how good of a value he is, even though he's the highest owned guy, you can have him on 45% of your lineup. So you can make a, a contrarian portfolio and it's kind of the same idea as um, as redraft if you're doing the same thing that everyone else is doing you're just kind of trying to hit bingo at every single position whereas you can just diversify your approach um, and now you just have a very naturally different portfolio than everybody else and that could lead to some uh, really big tournament success so uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that but I just wanted to touch on that before we we brush past that ownership talk I mean, yeah, you basically summed it up pretty well. You know, for the people starting out, I would just say, to clarify what TJ is saying, you know, you guys, if you're playing in tournaments, you should be multi-entering, I think. if you, I think it's, you know, some of us, we like to make less tournament lineups and put them in higher buy-ins, and that's certainly another strategy. But I think, especially for people that are just starting out or intermediate, I think it does make sense to give yourself as many shots as possible at some of these large tournaments. And I think you do want to multi-enter. So if you're planning to play $20 a week in tournaments, you know, I would recommend 
10 $2 tournaments and, and you know, you play 10 lineups and that gives you an easy way to calculate your exposure. You know, you have a guy in one lineup, he's 10%. You have a guy in two lineups, he's 20%. And you should be tracking and managing your exposure to some level. You don't want all the same players and all the same combinations of players in the same lineup because then you're not really diversifying as much as you want. And I will mention that 4 for 4's DFS subscription in our lineup generator, which will have ceiling and floor projections in it this year, we also have a way for you to uh, edit your exposure to each player. So you can tell the lineup generator, hey, I want more or less exposure to this guy, and you will be able to do that. So another addition to the uh, 4 for 4 DFS subscription. So definitely subscribe. It's a great value. Uh, check that out. But... TJ, yeah, let's, uh, let's tell us about this regression, man. Sure. So uh, all offseason, I've been looking at touchdown regression for every single position and uh, really focusing in on red zone, red zone opportunities, red zone volume, uh, and red zone touchdowns, obviously. Uh, the reason I really wanted to dig into this and do it for every single position separately is because we reference – uh, red zone work all the time. It's one of our favorite stats when we get into the, our weekly analysis here on DFS MVP. You hear it all over um, any weekly football talk. You hear red zone work, but it's not all the same. A target to a wide receiver from the 20-yard line obviously isn't the same as a target from the one-yard line, so I just wanted to quantify that. Uh, what I did is I took every single target from every wide receiver last year and calculated the historical percentages. So for example, a target from between the 15 and 20 yard line has about a 13% chance of a touchdown uh, if that target is to a wide receiver. So given that a touchdown is six points, we multiply that by 13%. That target has an expected value of about 0.79. On the flip side, a target from inside the five yard line has a roughly 40% chance of scoring if that target is to a wide receiver. That gives us an expected value of about 2.4 points for target. So I went through all of the red zone targets last year for all of the wide receivers and looked at the players that scored more than they should have, looked at the players that scored less than they should have. And a lot of people hear this analysis, and I do translate it to redraft a lot because it does have season-long implications, uh, but it does have some very important DFS implications. And the reason being, and we've talked about this in past podcasts, is that Often players that overperformed or underperformed last year are going to be mispriced not only in redraft, but going into the season. So if a player just has lower expectations or didn't perform well, that player is going to be underpriced. And on top of that, that player is probably going to be underowned because the last thing people remember is that player not playing very well. On, on the flip side to it, if a player had a really good season last year, earlier in the year, he's probably going to be Uh, very highly owned but if there is some regression either positive or negative we could take advantage of that by uh, having more exposure to the players that might be positively regressing having less exposure to the players that are going to be negatively regressing so i'm just going to get into some wide receivers that overperformed last year based on their red zone targets and the one that stands out the most um is 
Allen Robinson. And not to say Allen Robinson isn't a great player because I think he does very much fit the mold of a Des Bryant. I think he has a skill set, the body type to be a very dominant red zone threat. But the rate at which he scored last year just is not sustainable. Uh, given where he saw all of his targets from, the average wide receiver had an expected value of about 38 uh, red zone points from touchdowns. Allen Robinson had 12 red zone touchdowns, so he scored about six touchdowns over expected value in the red zone. That's just on his red zone targets. So even though he is a guy that I think can convert touchdowns at a very high rate, he converted his red zone looks at 57% last year. Uh, For reference, Dez is around 40. Uh, Gronk is just above 40%. A guy like Eric Decker, who's phenomenal, is around 35%. So as good as Allen Robinson is we just can't expect him to perform at that level and I think a lot of people will go into the season expecting him to replicate his numbers and it's just not sustainable so uh, I think early on in the season before kind of the 2015 hype fades a little bit I think he might be a guy that we might want to avoid a little bit Uh, another guy that um, scored way more than he should and he's another wide receiver that's a very good red zone threat is Brandon Marshall given his targets he was right around the same expectation as Brandon Marshall uh, as Allen Robinson he had a 36 point expectation but he scored 60 points from red zone touchdowns he scored 10 red zone touchdowns so about four over expectation and again he is a guy that has converted a little over average he's been at about 29 percent for uh, for his career. Last year, he converted 40% of his red zone looks. And overall, he converted eight of his t- 8% of his total targets into touchdowns. Uh, I ran some numbers and put it in this article that you mentioned, Chris. And over the last 10 seasons, 33 wide receivers have posted a touchdown rate over 8% on at least 100 targets. So uh, both Allen Robinson and Brandon Marshall fit into this uh, category. But only five of those 33 receivers have met or exceeded their touchdown rate the following year. And on average, that receiver saw a 3.4% drop-off in their overall touchdown rate. Uh, Basically what that's saying is that these guys are not scoring touchdowns at a sustainable rate. New York is an interesting situation because we know they have a lot of mouths to feed. We know that... Uh, Eric Decker is going to see at least as many targets as Brandon Marshall in the red zone. Uh, A sneaky guy that I don't think a lot of people are are talking about is uh, Quincy Inunua, who's their third wide receiver. And not to say he's just going to go in there and and dominate the red zone targets, but this is a team that runs four and five wide receiver sets more than any other team in the league. And he's a player that profiles very close to Josh Gordon, who we know is phenomenal. Not to say he is Josh Gordon, but he has that type of ability. And another guy that wasn't healthy was Jason Morrow. We expected him coming out of his rookie year to be a very uh, productive tight end. So I'm not saying Brandon Marshall isn't going to be good. I just don't think he'll be as great as he uh, was last year. So, again, another guy that we might see the public have a little higher expectations on, especially early in the season. Uh, we might be able to to fade him and have a little bit of advantage early on in the season. Uh, on the flip side, uh, one guy that really stood out to me that should regress positively is 
Mike Evans. Now, his red zone expectation didn't have a huge gap. Uh, he was only expected to score four red zone touchdowns last year, but he only scored two. Uh, he only converted, I think, 11% of his red zone looks, which is a, a very low number for a player of his caliber. I mean, the just the league average alone is 25%. We saw him convert 33% of his red zone looks his rookie year. I think Jameis is a guy that... I wrote him up as a positive touchdown uh, regression candidate as well. So there's a little bit of a chicken or egg situation. Was it Mike Evans being bad? Was it Jameis being a rookie? Either way, I think this whole passing offense can uh, can improve a lot, and I think it will improve. And also, Mike Evans could dominate the targets in the red zone more than anybody in the league. Uh, we, I mean, Vincent Jackson is not getting younger. We don't know how healthy he can be. The tight end situation's a little bit of a mess. It's Cameron Brait one day, Austin Safarian Jenkins catching touchdowns in practice the next day. So the one guy that stands out is Mike Evans. He had the same red zone expectation as Odell Beckham last year. So it's it, the potential is there. And I think he's a guy, especially we look at week one, a very high scoring game at Atlanta where a lot of people are going to be on Julio. Um, Mike Evans is going to be a lot cheaper and has just as much upside as a Julio Jones. So he's a guy that I'm really looking at early in the season. Definitely some really interesting ones. You know, I think it's Allen Robinson. I just want to clarify that like, by us saying that he's going to regress touchdown-wise, that doesn't mean like you shouldn't take him in the first round mm-hmm. of a PPR draft or something like that. Because I think that's where people say, oh, you know, Allen Robinson's definitely re- going to regress. Well, regression to the mean, everyone has a mean, so everyone's going to regress. Like, you know, like everyone who puts up an outlying season is going to regress somewhat. So what we're mm-hmm. talking about is kind of... Allen Robinson is going to be priced at the level of which he scored touchdowns last year early in the season. And we're saying Mm -hmm. that's why we might want to look at some other options. But, you know, if you're in a season-long PPR draft, like I have drafted Allen Robinson at like 1-6. So, like, I wouldn't avoid him there. Mm -hmm. I think he's just a really good receiver that can put up production even when he's covered because you you just throw the ball up to him and he catches it. But this is just in terms of, salary and salary being based on touchdown production yeah for for sure i mean and we touched about it when we talked about ownership percentage i mean it's not to say don't fade him completely but if he's a guy going in early in week one a high scoring game against the packers if he's going to be a 40 percent owned guy maybe you just have 20 percent exposure to him because what people are probably owning him on is his last year's production um and this is a game of of very thin margins even if you're really, really good at cash games, you're only winning 60, 65% of the time. So, uh, you know, a couple percentage difference in, in a little bit of a touchdown regression can give you a really big edge in DFS. So it's, it's definitely worth noting. Absolutely. Let's go now to some year in review stuff. I wrote two articles well, it's actually a series. It's one for every position for both FanDuel and DraftKings. It's called uh, DFS Strategy Year in Review. So for these two articles will be the wide receiver versions. And what I did was I basically looked at wide receiver performance against the salary caps. And I divided players into different salary tiers. I looked at how often they hit cash game value, tournament value, etc. And I'll just go over some of the more interesting findings. 
And one of the things that I think is interesting to discuss is something TJ alluded to before, which is that there are differences between FanDuel and DraftKings due to the fact that DraftKings is a full PPR site with yardage bonuses set at three points when you reach 100 yards for a wide receiver. So on DraftKings, in tournaments, you're trying to score at least 200. That will probably get you a decent cash, but to win, you probably need around 250 or more. It really depends on the week. There is high-scoring and low-scoring weeks, but we'll call it 250, but 200 to really guarantee that you're going to have a decent cash. And on DraftKings, there were 10.4 wide receivers per week to to score four points per thousand dollars which if your whole lineup scores four points per thousand dollars of course you would score 200 now on FanDuel on the other hand you're looking to score about at least 180 with the 60k cap so that's about three points per thousand dollars and the difference between these two sites was that on DraftKings you had 10.4 wide receivers per week hit tournament value on FanDuel that was there was only 6.8 wide receivers per week and the reason for that is because there's no yardage bonuses and because there's no full PPR on FanDuel, the wide receivers that have bigger games and multi-touchdown games are really going to be the guys that are going to be able to give you that tournament value. On DraftKings, there's going to be more ways to skin a cat, so to speak. There, Some guys are going to hit their value by just getting a lot of receptions and hitting that yardage bonus. Then you're going to have the two touchdown guys, but the two touchdown guys might not even hit 100 yards. So a lot of different ways or more ways on DraftKings and on full PPR sites in general. I know DraftKings is the only one with the three-point bonus, which uh, exacerbates the issue a bit. But in general, a little more, a few more ways to hit value on full PPR sites. Now, this can be seen in the average stat lines for tournament value on each site. On DraftKings, to hit tournament value, which is 4x or 4 points per thousand, a wide receiver needed 7.1 catches on average, 111 yards, and 1.1 touchdowns. Now, on FanDuel, because there were less wide receivers and it was harder to do, the average stat line for a FanDuel wide receiver to hit tournament value was 7.7 catches, 120 receiving yards and 1.4 touchdowns so truly monster games and now you can see more clearly why you should be paying up for these stud wide receivers because keep in mind this is this is all wide receivers to hit 3x value and that's the average and it was 7.7 for 120 and we are we know that a lot of cheaper guys just aren't putting up those kind of stat lines. You know, they're not putting up eight catches for a buck twenty. You know, they might they might surprise with five for a hundred, but eight for one twenty is a stat line that's generally most of the time going to be a stud wide receiver or a higher end wide receiver. Definitely a wide receiver one on a team. Now on Fanduel to hit tournament value, forty three percent of receivers needed multiple touchdowns. While on DraftKings, it was only 28%. So another big difference, TJ's talked about this in his big game profiles, you need those multiple touchdown games on FanDuel, which means you need that red zone production. You need those red zone targets, and you need that those red zone target market shares. Uh, so, and even to just scoring one touchdown on FanDuel, 93% of 
wide receivers to hit tournament value scored one touchdown, 93%. So pretty much every receiver to hit tournament value, you're going to need one touchdown. On DraftKings, 77%. So three out of four, but certainly different from 93%. So uh, DraftKings, I think you can be a little bit more, you don't have to, you know, you can be a little more liberal with the players you select, where on Fando, I think I'd be a little more selective just in terms of making sure that I'm really targeting a high-end receiver with a lot of target upside, a lot of uh, red zone target upside. Whereas on DraftKings, if a guy can hit 100 yards one way or another, I think you can take a chance on him, which opens things up a little more. On both sites, under 45% of wide receivers to hit tournament value were favorites. So this just goes back to what I was saying before, where Vegas lines really aren't that helpful for wide receivers. And under 45% being favorites, I would, I don't have the exact data on this, but I would assume that ownership for wide receivers is going way in the other direction, where I think a lot more wide receivers are owned on teams that are favorites. And there was also real no, no real home field advantage in terms of players to hit tournament value on either sites. So I would really take advantage of that fact. And in general, I would just take advantage of the fact that I think the field will be looking at Vegas lines a lot more and will be looking at matchup in terms of fantasy points allowed a lot more. Whereas I think the real edge is looking at volume, opportunity, you know, targets and market shares, which aren't being stressed enough so you can usually find good value on players that are owned but not as much as the top guys who are going to be probably overowned due to favorable Vegas odds or whatnot and in terms of stacking we went over this in the quarterback strategy podcast a few weeks ago so I'll keep it brief but just to go back to some of the stacking findings for wide receivers I wrote about these in The Definitive Guide to Stacking on DraftKings and The Definitive Guide to Stacking on FanDuel, which you can read at 4 for 4 completely free right now, so go check those out. But wide receiver one, best stacking partner for a quarterback in terms of a two-man stack, and wide receiver one always, almost always involved in the most effective three-man and four-man stack. So if you're making a three- and four-man stack and you don't want to fade the wide receiver one, I mean, you can, but it's a really, really not a plus easy move to do so. Uh, There's going to be a couple instances per year when some ridiculous stack goes off, but trying to search that out and find it is not going to be effective. It's essentially going to be a random black swan event that you're never going to be able to predict beforehand. So in terms of the most effective stacks, and again, you can see the data for all of this by checking out the articles I mentioned, but wide receiver one is the best stacking partner in two-man stacks, and the wide receiver one is always involved in the multiple stacks. Now, when you start getting into the other wide receivers, what happens is I think a lot of people gravitate towards stacking quarterback, wide receiver one, wide receiver two. And that might be a little bit of a mistake because what I found was that the running back one is actually the second most effective stacking partner for the quarterback. So if you're doing a three-man stack, a lot of times the run, it, it should be quarterback, running back, wide receiver one rather than quarterback, wide receiver one, wide receiver two. So that's something to keep in mind there and 
another thing that's really important is opposing passing games correlate. And that's especially true with wide receiver ones. So what happens is the wide receiver one and the opposing wide receiver one have a strong correlation. And that is something that you can use to your advantage if you are creating a player pool of wide receivers each week if you're entering multiple lineups and tournaments and you have a player pool of wide receivers and you have wide receivers on opposing teams playing in the same games it's good to pair those guys up because they have a strong correlation so if one goes off the other will probably go off and if one doesn't there's a better chance that the other one doesn't either this won't always happen like that of course but just going by the odds and the the numbers it's it's advantageous to you to to pair opposing wide receiver ones up when you can. And it's something that I don't think the majority of the field is utilizing, at least just yet. So those are some things to keep in mind. As far as stacking, let's quickly just go over any week one pricing thoughts. Um, we'll do a whole episode, of course, for the DFS MVP podcast presented by 4 for 4 Football on week one uh, during that week. But for now, just some pricing that I noticed, and then I'll, I'll ask the same of you, TJ, but things I noticed, Dante Moncrief against the Detroit Lions, wide receiver at 37 on the FanDuel slate at 6,200, but he's wide receiver 24 on DraftKings, so Moncrief looks like a big value. He's going in the late third round now in MFL 10 best ball drafts, which are generally comprised of sharper drafters, a lot of industry experts who just can't get enough fantasy football drafting, so that just shows you um, how much of a value is Moncrief is on on FanDuel in week one, and he's going against a defense that's not particularly strong against the pass. I know Darius Slay is a pretty good corner, but outside of that, not much there for the Lions, and Slay will likely have his hands full with T.Y. Hilton. Um, TJ, what do you think of the Antonio Brown, or the potential Antonio Brown versus Josh Norman matchup? Well, if I remember correctly from last year, Norman doesn't shadow, correct? Um, or he didn't. He he kind of on and off last year. Um, yeah, yeah. He plays, but he, they played a lot of cover three. So Carolina, right? Scheme I was just really going to say him. that Carolina, yeah. exactly. Uh, so that could change this year. Um, I think Brown is like the best thing we've ever seen at wide receiver. So I'm not like I. I almost want more of him in a quote-unquote bad matchup just because I think he'll be a guy that ends up being uh, under-owned relative to what he should be just because there will be people that are going to shy away from it. So for me, it's not even as much of a matchup play as a game theory play. Absolutely, and that's why I asked. That's what I was getting at. I think people will you know, see the Josh Norman matchup and maybe hesitate a little bit. And, you know, of course, Antonio Brown is pretty much the most expensive wide receiver on the slate. So, but I I don't think there's any cornerback in the league that can slow down Antonio Brown. And I would not hesitate to play him, especially because you might get him at lower ownership. Marvin Jones, 4,600 on DraftKings going against the Colts. I think this is a really interesting one because... Marvin Jones has looked good in the preseason. He looked good last... uh, Well, we're recording this on a Friday, so he looked good last night against the Bengals. 
think he put up a four for 65 line. Now the concern here is Marvin could see some of Vontae Davis. TJ, would you be willing to take a shot at Marvin Jones at 4,600 in a tournament? Uh, it's pretty hard to ignore that price. Uh, I mean, he's priced what 40, 41st on, on DraftKings. Um, so we just kind of talked about how garbage time can be really good for a wide receiver. Um, and that's uh, that's a situation where Indy's going to be at home. Uh, they're favored by five. So even if he does have a tough matchup, there's news coming out of camp that Jones is sneaking into the actual wide receiver one role. Uh, he is a very interesting guy because one thing that I like to look at are uh, price discrepancies between the two sites, which sometimes uh, will will point towards it pricing inefficiency. So Marvin Jones is priced 40th on DraftKings, but 55th on FanDuel. So he's priced pretty low on both, but that is enough of a gap to notice. And we don't always know which way the pricing and efficiency goes, but the sites are in disagreement about how he's going to perform. So um, I do take note of that, and, and it kind of makes my radar go up a little bit more when the gap's that big. Definitely. And uh, one more interesting one. Assuming he's the week one starter against the Eagles, do you take a shot at Terrell Pryor at mid-price on DraftKings in a tournament? No. <laughs> care, care to elaborate on that? I mean, like, I just don't think, like, he's not going to be a guy that's going to see 10 targets. I don't think this offense is going to be particularly good, at least not right off the bat. Um, so, I I mean, this, this just feels like the ultimate preseason hype train is going to destroy everyone's lives that buys into it. <laughs> So, I mean, I haven't. I mean, there just is there isn't a lot of uh, a lot of data on prior. I have done a lot of work on Hugh Jackson, um, and he's a guy that's not afraid if he doesn't have a clear number one guy to spread the ball around. I think Barnage is going to dominate targets along with Duke Johnson. So I don't I don't even think there's going to be a receiver. Even if Josh Gordon comes back, this could be a, a situation where we see three receivers all under twenty percent market share. That's just not a situation that I'm generally really targeting in any format definitely definitely um i will i mean i will say this like prior he's getting separation so i mean that's that's the only reason i was asking because you know the eagles don't have good cornerbacks and prior's mid price he's get he had caught 250 yard bombs already i mean again it's preseason but he blew by um desmond trufant yesterday who's a really good corner so i think some people will definitely be considering him so i wanted to get your thoughts on tp but i think that about wraps it up for us we're just over an hour on dfs mvp presented by four for four football so in closing i will just remind you guys that four for fours dfs subscription for the 2016 season is available now We have ceiling and floor projections, lineup generator where you can generate up to 500 lineups at a time. You can save them. You can input them into FanDuel and DraftKings in multi-entry. We have stack value reports, um, all the stacks that I've been mentioning that um, aren't on 
a lot of people's radar yet in terms of running backs, in terms of opposing wide receiver ones and things like that. You'll get stack value reports for all of those. Um, we do separate site-specific write-ups for cash games and for tournaments. So we do our own FanDuel, cash game FanDuel, GPP, DraftKings, cash game DraftKings, GPP, Yahoo, etc. So a lot of good things on the 4 for 4 DFS subscription. You can go to 444.com right now and check it out. That's the number 4, the letters F-O-R, and the number 4.com. And we really think you will enjoy that. But it's about time for us to breeze on out of here. You can follow TJ on Twitter at his name, T-J-H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z. And you can follow me on Twitter at my name. That's at C-H-R-I-S-R-A-Y-B-O-N. Any parting thoughts, Mr. Hernandez? Shmoney over everything. Let's get this money. Okay. I'm people with me. I'm people with it. I'm a player baller. I'm a player's athletic. I'm a people A1. All got street cred. I'm a player baller. I'm a player's athletic. Pulled up in the fountain. Pulled off with a dance. Got a pocket full of money. Kind of hard to keep my pants up. Trying to run them bands up, just because you my hands up. Lil' Quay put his hands up, kinda hard to understand, though. Duffel bags in the Escalade, caught a big deal bread truck. Got the big going retarded, called over for a spare truck. All these niggas never scared us, all these niggas never ran us. Trying to, trying to put the head on trying to, trying to put the feds on Trying to take meds on everything for the players on It's something like Arizona, gunshot just for saying something. Spraying shit like aerosol. You a foul and it's a fair ball. People can't reach the goals. Keep shooting them down air ball. Watch out, little bitch. Watch out, little bitch. Watch out, little bitch. Watch out, little Watch out, little bitch. You getting mad? You getting mad? I'm getting rich. You getting mad? I'm getting rich.